This is the Watercooler podcast number 51, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Hello, I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Welcome to the second of two Watercooler podcasts recorded in Sydney in late December 2020 on the occasion of the 8th John Howard Lecture. The lecturer is John Anderson, a former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, now best known to millions around the world for his YouTube and podcast interview series with some of the greatest brains on the planet. The title of his speech is Disunity is Death. He explores the corrosive influence of identity politics and the grim ideology that lies behind it. In this second episode, we'll be listening to the post-lecture discussion between Anderson and the man in whose honour this lecture series is named, Australia's 25th Prime Minister, John Howard. John, um, can I say, uh, this is a comment by, followed by a question, but I say that what really impressed me about that presentation tonight was that you gave um, an intellectual... Uh, gave intellectual flesh to what a lot of people are feeling and you you, you dragged it together uh, in a very impressive way and I think the point that you made most powerfully to me was to just look at the contribution of the West and we shouldn't muck around uh, this assault uh, that you talked about in identity politics is all about denigrating the centrality of Western civilization to our being. And I mean, I, th- I was born in 1939 and, I, and, and, and the two great challenges of my lifetime were uh, Nazism and uh, communism. And, and in the end, both of them were brought down by the combined forces, not only of the, ba- of the military, but of the values uh, of, of the nations that have stood at the center of Western civilization. So. Uh, I suppose my my question to you is, uh, how do you think the contemporary exponents of liberal democracy around the world, the ones that should be carrying the burden of the fight more than anybody else, how do you think they're faring? Uh, (laughs) um, I'm encouraged because there are so many people tapping in in so many ways now Mm. to try and get their minds around what's happening. Because this has snuck up on us, I think, to a very great degree. One of my neighbours, you know, an intelligent and thoughtful man, said to me, oh, it'll be all right, the Australian people are so pragmatic, he's got three kids. He's now beginning to realise a couple of years on what they're being exposed to at school and university. And it's not what he thought it was. And they're turning out to have very different values to, to the ones that he thought they would accept and imbibe, if I can put it that way. Peter Ruth once said of Tim Fisher, you don't listen to what Tim Fisher says so much as imbibe it. You may recall that. I was thinking, Tim had a quirky way of putting things. Um, I'll tell you what I'm greatly encouraged by. It's the number of young people who are beginning to realise they've been sold a pup and they're looking for answers. And the thing that most encourages me of all about the conversations is the young people who come up to me and say things like, you know, in my university, in my workplace, I have not felt able to own the things that I really think and I haven't been able to speak out because I haven't known how to do it, and I'm finding now there are resources where I can tap into people who can unpack it for me and give me the arguments. 
So I'm massively encouraged by that. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't think we're doing very well at all. I think our future is absolutely in the balance. I'll be quite frank with you. I really do. Uh, and I don't want to gild the lily on that. Uh, this is urgent stuff. Uh, I think Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay effectively say this new movement sees liberal democracy as its enemy, it's powerful, and only one's going to win. And we can't be too sure that it's going to be the good guys this time. I do think it's serious. But, but I'm encouraged by the number of people who are getting their minds around it, the, the young people who are waking up, the young people who are feeling cheated by what they've been fed and are looking for meat in place of gruel. The evidence of that, more than anything else, for me, happened a couple of years ago when um, I was asked to chair a meeting for um, Jordan Peterson at Chatswood. A thousand people are hanging from the rafters, and uh, around half of them, at least, were young Australian men. And I looked at them and I thought, they're the guys that would have lined up for the coup marches, the volunteers, mm. the people we would have seen as the cream of our society. And they were... I'll tell you what was driving them. They know they're being painted not as victims, but as victim-makers. And they're saying, no, we don't want to be victim-makers. We want to be above this. Where's a better narrative? And so when he said to them, don't think an empathy culture can solve your problems, you solve them. Go back to your bedroom. You know that rhetoric. You've probably all heard it. Pull your shoulders back. Face the fact you're not the person you ought to be. Resolve to be as noble as you can, and then go back out there and do your best. And the fact that there were people packed to hear that man who was not a sportsman or a motivational... Well, you could call him a motivational speaker, but he's much more than that. Uh, not some sort of international superstar. And social media meant that a young group of Australians knew all about him and they gave him a standing ovation before he said anything and a standing ovation when he finished speaking and another one... I mean, I felt very... Uh, I thought, I mean, I've been in the wrong profession. They love him. Mm. Um, I found very profound and moving. And so... My final comment out of that would be mentor young people whenever you have the opportunity because they are really hungry for it. Do you, do you think, John, just following up that, to what contribution do you believe to that you know, lost state that many young people feel? What contribution has been made to that over the years through the perceived decline of religious belief? I, I think it's been a, a major contributor and I was talking to a very thoughtful fellow with Nick over lunch today where he was saying about my age and he was just making the observation and I think it was a very powerful one. He said when we went to school we learnt the great tenets uh, of, of Christian faith even if we didn't believe it. So the story of the Good Samaritan, love your neighbour, the golden rule which undergirded the Western approach to thinking of others and doing unto others as you'd have them do unto yourself. Uh, the story of the prodigal son, you know, you can return, lost on a younger generation. So I, I think it's been a very significant role and I think I've played a very significant role and I do think that there is a real thirst for something deeper and more meaningful. I don't know where it will land, but I would say this. The problem we have in... One way of looking at the problem we have at the moment, and I see it as a very serious one, is that our enemies, both within and without, are full of all conviction. Have you noticed that? There's a frightening absolutism amongst the people who hate Western culture inside our countries as well as outside our countries. 
And as Yates had it, the best lack all conviction. That's why I'm saying, not lecturing to you, I'm saying to each one of us, to the best of our ability, we have to step up. We have to find that conviction. And that conviction ought to be rooted in the golden rule, loving your neighbour. We must avoid falling into the trap that the Americans have fallen into, where this polarisation is so vicious that you have what Arthur Brooks has called, and I think it's a really valuable insight. You see the anger. We all see that on our television sets. But it's been combined with disgust. And when you combine the two, you get contempt. And when you become contemptuous of one another, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in a community or whether it's across political divides, rather than, if you like, you know, strongly committed to opposing worldviews, but rather contemptuous personally of one another, you're in deep, deep trouble. So somehow we've got to fight this hydra-headed monster without losing our own uh, civil commitment to civility. Uh, I, I don't want to stop other people asking you questions, but I've, you know, you've, you, your speech was a, a treasure trove of, of provocation to ask these sort of questions. But um, have you seen around the free world, the democratic world in recent times, uh, examples of where identity politics has triumphed and also examples of where it has fallen on its face? Oh, John, I think I'd have to take that on notice. I'm sure there are a lot. But I would say that I think identity politics is capturing our, politics, our politicians because they've become so... So many of them are so nervous now about standing up for the things that we normally believe in. Um, I think that's a, that's a very general answer, but I think mm. it's massively distorting our politics, uh, and I think that is really worrying. How many people... There are, they're there. We've got some... Look... I should edit this from the tape, but I'm really impressed by some of the, uh, uh, the people in our team in Canberra, particularly some of the, the Liberals, uh, who, who really are beginning to speak out, mm. show real courage and to defend the things that we ought to defend. As Lionel Shriver wrote so effectively, it might have been a speech that I saw written up recently, the people who, all the, you know, the people who turn out to the... Um, uh, Black Lives Matter protests and what have you. And I know that there were people who did it out of good intent, but few of them had any idea of how they were really being taken for a ride by the people who organised that thing. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they will still want their mobile phone and their social media and their three square meals a day. And where are they going to find it if they smash the system that's delivered it for them in spades? And that, that's the danger that we're falling into. We have to think, not just feel. But what do you think of the proposition that, that I, I, I think I hold to, that if Donald Trump had handled the pandemic half decently, he would have won the election, and that um, uh, I think he was headed towards the victory until the pandemic hit, and it was his mishandling of that, because in the end, the public, when threatened want their leaders to defend them against the threat. And that is why you've had you know, the phenomenon Scott Morrison has very high approvals, Gladys Berejiklian has, uh, our friend in Western Australia has, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, even, even our friend in Victoria is uh, um, surviving. He's more than surviving. 
he's quite politically he's quite perpendicular uh, <laughs> at, 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 at the present time now part of that is a perception that difficult though it all was and so forth he's sort of uh, got the show through now I mean I, I think he's open to a lot of political attack and uh, and I know this is not a political occasion. I shouldn't uh, join in that attack. But um, I think there's something to be said for the proposition that... Uh, uh, and, and this is an optimistic thing, in a way, just that uh, the, the side of politics in America that embraced identity politics far more, namely the Democratic Party side, if you take out... I mean, sure, Biden won, but given how appallingly Trump handled the pandemic, how else could he not win? Uh, I mean, it was just uh, he, 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 every time he had a news conference, he was he was uh, penning a suicide, political suicide note. I think he's handling it, the, mm. and it was terrible. But if you look at the the Congress, mm. Republicans did far better than many people expected, and the same thing in the Senate. Um, I I'm, I draw a little bit of ins well encouragement from that, not in a partisan sense. I normally more sympathetic to the Republicans than I am to the Democrats, but I think probably there was a, a middle American rejection to be found in that election outcome, notwithstanding the fact that Trump won. And I think you're starting to see it reflected in Biden's choice of people who will serve in his administration. They're not as left-wing uh, and as embracing of uh, political correctness as you might expect. Not, not for the first time. Uh, you know, I enjoy... You're reinforcing my prejudices. That's a, that's a throwback. When I gave my maiden speech in August 1989, John was kind enough to come in and listen to it. He came over afterwards and shook my hand warmly and said, I enjoyed that. I always love, have, love having my prejudices reinforced. Yeah. Um, so it is my... I share the yeah, view. Yeah, I've been thrown out of the leadership a few months earlier, but... The... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I arrived in Canberra, was sworn in, and two days later, both my leader and the Liberal Party changed leaders. I was beginning to wonder what I'd done or what power I had. I soon to discover none was the answer. But, um, uh, look, I actually completely agree. I mean, I, I, when you look at it, if he'd not mishandled COVID, Trump would have been returned. He would have, yeah. And I think it is forever to the... Uh, the uh, uh, how would I put it? Um, uh, it's a forever a black mark against the American media and the Australian media that they were so poor at analysing policy and what he actually did... <clears throat> and so intent upon describing him as such a terrible person uh, that they answer, have a great deal to answer for. And particularly in Australia, there was very little analysis of where Australia's interests lay in these very different times, difficult times. But I think you're absolutely right. The American people, an astonishing number of people voted for him despite that behaviour and the disappointments. And despite the fact that, that he did have a lot of flaws. Yeah. Mm. And, the, and, and then they chose to reduce the Democrats' numbers in the House. Mm. And, well, we don't know until the runoff in Georgia, where I'm told the great probability is that whoever wins will win both. But the Republicans need at least one to continue to control the, uh, uh, the, the Senate. So it, it's a very important runoff for the globe. I mean, what happens in... American politics, the, 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 you know, is probably as important to us now at this point in history as what happens here. But I go back to the point that I made. You have to admire the Americans for engaging in the debate. 
you can't stand back anymore. I mean, all my instincts are, you know, uh, John will know that this is true and my wife will know it's true and the rest of you will say you're talking through your hat. But I'm essentially a very shy person who's really happier driving wheat trucks. But I am so motivated by what I see as the real potential for us to lose our freedoms and so despairing at our lack of... Am I allowed to say manning up in the face of this? I'm probably not. What else can I say? Humanising up. Whatever. No, Rising no, no, to the no. challenge. <laughs> no, I'm, no, see, there's a touch of wokeism in everyone. Um, uh, that, that I just feel, uh, you know, it's all hands to the wheel. Can I say to you, I don't think any of us can ask anymore what would I like to do. We need to ask what can I do. I really say that to you really seriously. I say that to you as, as friends, as people that I... I'm honoured to have been asked to speak to tonight and hopefully stimulate a bit of thinking. It really matters. It really matters. And we can be thankful that the Americans then, this is my point, are engaged. And as another good friend of mine, Kim Beasley, is a man I really do like, and I talked to him over in Western Australia a while ago, had a long time in America, he said, we miss the strength of middle America because we get the media and the Hollywood version. Or what... Uh, Victor Davis Hanson calls the drone view, with all the people from the West Coast and the East Coast who have become millionaires in the tech age as they sort of swan over the country and sort of refer to the hoi polloi down there. But the real America, there's still strength and determination and character and backbone and community there. And they have plainly said, sorry, Donald, you just went a little bit too far, or enough of them have, but by heck, don't you think, Joe, we're going to give you the keys to the you know, do what you want, what the left wing of your party wants to do. So Georgia will be important and we hope that Joe, who's not young, stays um, as fit, healthy and as with it as humanly possible for this term. You don't want his deputy either. No. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, it, I, I, I don't want to monopolise the interrogation. Uh, I, I, I don't want to stop other people, but um, uh, it, unless there's... No, Nick? I've got other questions. No, 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 I haven't... No, I've, got, I've got plenty of questions. Um, John, um, it, it's obvious from what you said in your speech that um, the narrative in our educational institutions... Mm is a big worry. Yeah. I mean, you're aware of the uh, argument that was advanced um, by academics in the Australian National University and also the University of Sydney opposing the um, program that was put forward by the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation. And, you know, I, I, I declare it interesting that I'm chairman of that body. And... Um, uh, it is extraordinary to me that the argument that was used was that um, arguing for the virtues and the historical contribution of Western civilization, the argument that was used by the opponents of Ramsey in those two institutions um, was that uh, in some way Western, what we were talking about was a sense of triumphalism, that it was all about the triumphal march of Western civilization and denying the contribution of other civilizations. And it seems to me that the biggest problem we have 
is the way in which the narrative in institutions, in universities, in both government and independent schools, don't anybody yeah. imagine that independent schools are in any way? I mean, I've, I've heard stories that some of the greatest rot in this context is, is taught in independent schools uh, and schools that uh, carry religious labels. Um, uh, I, you know, particularly from <clears throat> some uh, more mature-aged uh, uh, former pupils of those same schools. And I think this is the biggest problem. And what, in your view, is uh, uh, some of the things that governments of the right mind can do about that? Because I think it's the biggest problem by far. Well, well I, again, uh, reinforcing one another's prejudices, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And one of the remarkable things about this movement is that it can never acknowledge progress. See, one of the great things about liberal democracy is that we've corrected mm. so many wrongs. We've found it, I tried to make that point tonight, that we've found it in ourselves to say when it's ridiculous not to give women the vote. Of course it's wrong for women to be not equally paid. Of course slavery's wrong. We've found it within ourselves because of our beliefs and values and our understanding of the dignity of individuals. I mean, Lincoln understood that the American people were in serious uh, contravention of the stated beliefs about the self-evident truths of, you know, the value of all people and what have you in the great slavery debate in that country. But Britain had got there a long way before. And I'm indebted to a very clever writer in Quadrant, by the way, who, who pointed out, you know, this argument about slavery and racism and white supremacy, um, it's just so misleading. The African slave trade was based on slaves on the West Trade purchased by for trinkets, as you know, on the, on the West Trade, West Coast of America. From whom? African slave traders. Mm. Who'd gone themselves into the inland, murdered the infants and the infirm and the aged, rounded up the rest, taken them back to the coast and sold them. Now, there were whites who participated in that dreadful and evil trade, but there were whites who ultimately succeeded in getting rid of it. Were they all racist? But 17... This was a story about Quadrant. 17,000 sailors in the Royal Navy lost their lives when Britain said... There was no United Nations in those days, of course. We're going to seek to end the slave trade around the world. So we'll intercept, sla we'll intercept slave traders on the high sea. 17,000 white Royal Navy sailors died freeing or seeking to defend the rights of Negroes, of, of blacks. Were they racist? So your point is, the point that I'm making is that the reason they won't open the door, they keep it jammed shut, is that they don't want people denying the woke narrative that we are evil and our system is broken and it must be overthrown. I think it's really important we understand that. The minute you let the light in and say, well, actually, we've achieved a fair bit and we've been self-correcting and we've been able to right wrongs and it's because of our value system and because of the heroes of the past, and I'm sorry, I'll start quoting Churchill in a moment, but in 1934 he said this, uh, and, and, and Nick down the back will say, John, you quote it too often, they'll be bored stiff. I'm sorry, bear with me for a moment. He wrote in 19, uh, 1934... Uh, that any culture which does not pass on to its children an understanding of its history and in particular its beliefs and its heroes is in effect saying that that past is null and void, thus leaving its young, his words not mine, 
without purpose and direction and meaning in life and open to Karl Marx's dictum that a people separated from their history are easily persuaded. Well, boy, our young people have been easily persuaded. But my point earlier is that enough of them are waking up because it's gone too far. They're now being painted as victim makers, particularly the young men, and they're saying, we're not. Churchill also said, you can learn all you need to know about statecraft from the study of history, and the more you want to see into the future, the further you should look to the past. I'm indebted, talking of prime ministers, to a friend of mine who gave me a book of things that he really said and the things he didn't say, you know, all those Churchill quotes. And there was a beauty in there, a former prime minister, that you might appreciate. Um, those, be those remarkable speeches that he gave early in the war, because there was no recording equipment. No. So he had to rush off to BBC studios to make them as addresses to the nation. And one of them, they rushed up out of the war cabinet offices under, where is it? Uh, you know, uh, they're still there. You can, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, Thompson, his bodyguard, and somebody from his office there, they hailed down a cab and said, quick, go, um, um, uh, can you take us to the BBC studios? And uh, the bloke said, the, the cabbie said, uh, sorry, Gov, it's in the wrong direction. I've got to get home to get to be with the missus to listen to the Prime Minister. <laughs> which Thompson, without a word, pulled out a fresh fiver and said, uh, uh, would, would this help persuade you? And the cabbie looked at it and he said, oh, Gov, that makes all the difference. Bugger the Prime Minister, jump in. Excuse <laughs> <laughs> <Here's> the French. <laughs> and turned around and took him back and probably heard the thing live. <laughs> we must... Uh... Thank these gentlemen for, for um, uh, concluding. But thank you so much for, for delivering this lecture. This has been uh, the best event the Men's Research done, the Centre's done in months. In fact, it's the only event. Uh, but we're looking forward to next year to getting back to more of these things. And negotiations start straight after this lecture about who next year's John Howard lecture director will be. But that's all from us at the Menzies Research Centre. Thank you for being here and thank you for supporting us and good night. You've been listening to John Anderson delivering the eighth John Howard Lecture, brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. If you'd like to be one of the growing group of people who think these podcasts deserve to be supported, you can become a subscriber from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Listener.